0: From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and SiriusXM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on SiriusXM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's work-life integration project, and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman.
1: My guest today is Monica Warline, who is the founder and CEO of Enliven Work. Enliven Work teaches businesses how to use compassionate leadership to enliven or humanize and energize the work they do. Monica is also a research scientist at Stanford University's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, and she's co-author with the great Jane Dutton of a recently published book called Awakening Compassion at Work, The Quiet Power That Elevates People and Organizations. In this episode, Monica and I talk about the business benefits of creating a culture of compassion at work. There's less turnover, there's greater innovation, there's increased retention. It's a way to attract talent. Monica's four steps to be powerfully compassionate at work are covered here, so you'll learn those. Uh, we also talk about the importance of executive leaders setting the tone at the top and how it's not really that hard to do that from the perspective of an executive leader or really anybody in an organization setting the tone. And as a special bonus for this episode of the podcast, we've included two stories of listeners who called in to the show, the Sirius XM Morton radio show, Work and Life, with poignant, instructive examples of awakening compassion. And now, here's my conversation with Monica Werlein. Monica Warline, welcome to Work and Life.
2: Thank you, Stu. It's a privilege to be here.
1: What sparked your interest in compassion in organizational life?
2: I think I really got started mm-hmm. um, being interested in it because I came to graduate school in organizational psychology from a background of um, working as a frontline employee in Silicon Valley startup organizations this was before the dot com bubble so it was a different silicon valley than it is now mm-hmm. but uh still what i observed were organizations where people were working at the maximum of their capacity and they were trying to solve technological problems that nobody really even knew if there was a solution possible and that oftentimes that meant that they had such a passion for their work but they they really um, stayed at work all night and all day, and they, they taxed their family relationships in order to engage in their passion for work. And it really made me curious about how that kind of passion and dedication to work becomes sustainable over a whole lifetime. And I think uh, there are many keys and answers to that that I've discovered along the way, but uh Definitely compassion in the work environment is a big part of making passion for work and um, the hard work that so many people do more sustainable
1: the the core idea you know that that I take from awakening compassionate work is is how we respond to suffering uh, and, and the choices we have and and you've got some some very useful guides for how to respond to, to human suffering, whether it is as a result of uh, things that are happening at work or beyond work. Um, was, there, was there a particular episode or something happened with some person, maybe with yourself, where you experienced or saw firsthand uh, the kind of suffering that, that, that resulted in acts of compassion that, that were particularly inspiring to you?
2: I've a couple of interesting examples that's come from my personal experience and then I'll I'll share a brief one from Jane too that I know we share in the book and that was important on our journey in this research. So for myself, um one of the most formative experiences I had early on in my career Um, As I said, as a kind of a frontline worker in uh, startup organizations was that I was working on a research and development team in a startup organization, and I was on um, my holiday vacation. It was the day before Christmas, and I was uh, with my family, and I got a phone call Mm -hmm. from someone at work that I didn't even work closely with. And um, it was this very curt message that said, uh, don't bother coming back because you don't have a job to come back to. Wow. And um, <clears throat> I know that the downsizing was necessary financially for the startup organization. Mm-hmm. I certainly understand that part of it. But the way that the message was delivered to me mm-hmm. and the fact that it was done over the phone the day before a holiday mm-hmm. when I was on vacation um, was I felt you know really added to the distress mm-hmm. and the difficulty of also being suddenly out of a job. So that was one experience of a form of distress or suffering that organizations actually create mm-hmm. for people mm-hmm. um, often and another formative experience for me was um, going through a time in my life when i was getting divorced and i felt that the loss of that that personal relationship um, really disabled my capacity to think clearly and to be creative at work and in that instance i had the opposite response or um,
1: my supervisor, my colleagues, supervisor,
2: my colleagues mm-hmm. uh, people were quite understanding and gave me a lot of flexibility and allowed me to engage as much as I wanted to and disengage when I needed to. And so, the handling of that kind of suffering in my work environment was really different for mm-hmm. me, and that that really teaches us something that we hear. Over and over again in our research results as well, which is that the kinds the the kinds of uh, events that trigger suffering in people's lives can make a big difference to how much compassion they receive.
1: And and that's because of, of you know who's responsible. Like, did you bring this on yourself? Uh, that issue, or is it something different than that yeah, that you're referring to? I
2: think to? that's one one big one that. Um, The psychological research and the sociological research combined show us powerfully that if we have a reason to believe that the other person is responsible for their own Mm -hmm. suffering in some way, then we're less likely to offer them compassion. Um, But another thing that, that dampens our compassion at work is when um, we think that, there, that the infliction of harm or suffering is actually a business necessity. Mm-hmm. So in the case of a layoff or a downsizing or a performance termination or something like that, um, one of the ways that people dampen their compassion in that situation is by adopting a very economic logic. Mm-hmm.
1: It's business, it it's actually, not personal.
2: Yeah, that's like, right. Like the godfather. That's right, yeah
1: which i think you quote in your book if yeah. i'm not mistaken. <laughs> right. So, but what's the what's the cost of that approach?
2: Well, the cost is um several fold. Um first, it's obviously an emotional cost to the person that's being lost or let go, the a person um who's suffering in that way. So, People that aren't treated with compassion on the way out of organizations often have a harder time finding uh, Mm re-employment and go for a longer period of economic Hmm. distress. But the fact that um, people who remain in the organization weren't actually given the opportunity to engage in some kind of way that created compassion also creates additional harm for the people who stay. So the downsizing research shows us that the lack of compassion in the process by which people Mm -hmm. are treated in these difficult situations um, can increase incivility in the workplace among Mm -hmm. the people who remain. It reduces their commitment and it makes it more likely that they're going to leave just as fast as they can. So that actually increases the financial cost to sure. the employer quite substantially because they lose even more people by virtue of the human um, um, costs of the process.
1: Right, uh, and and that's uh, uh, it's, it. It may be hard to assess or, ha- or hard to think about the the longer term impact when you're. Um, having to make a hard decision like that, and, and to deliver it without heart, without without consideration, without a sense of empathy, without noticing and, and feeling what it's like on the other side—you um, know—that uh, that that can have long-term consequences and ripple effects uh, for the for the those who remain and see that. Oh, this is the kind of place I work at, where uh, the human side of us uh, is. Uh, is disregarded or ignored. Uh, b- before we get into, uh, and I and I want to spend as much time as we can on this as possible. What what you have uh, come up with as a really useful model for how to act with compassion and to awaken it in your organizational life. Uh, if we could just spend another minute or so on the the business benefits, uh, as if we needed to do that. But I think <laughs> I think it'd be helpful. You start your book with that, and if you could just give us like the you know the high level. Why is this? a smart uh, business choice to create a culture of compassion?
2: Sure. Well, we think it's really important to um, put the the solid evidence that has emerged over the past couple of decades out there so that compassion is not just viewed as something that's nice to have mm-hmm. in our organization. Right. Um,
1: Managers which, are not social workers.
2: Yeah. After exactly. all. Uh, but... Um, we, um, in the process of writing the book, we looked across all the evidence we could find, not just our own research, but lots of different disciplines. Mm-hmm. And um, we reported on the, the places where we could find really solid evidence that the presence of compassion in a work organization had a direct relationship with something that's strategically advantageous. Mm-hmm. And we found very solid evidence uh, to support the idea that when an organization or workplace is more compassionate to work in, it also creates a capability for innovation. So, Mm -hmm. people tend to feel more safe sharing ideas, Mm -hmm. it's easier to make mistakes and learn from them. Um, The work of all the researchers who've looked at psychological safety in organizations, um, building on Amy Edmondson's body of work, um, really uh, has added up to show that there is a link between compassion and innovation in organizations.
1: Mm -hmm. Not to Um, mention what you were saying earlier about uh, turnover, uh, unwanted turnover, uh, and people just showing up with their full capacities to do the work. Exactly.
2: So if your organization is really competing in a limited talent pool, or if Mm -hmm. uh, for most organizations retaining really talented people is a key part of how they're going to succeed, um, there's really robust evidence to show that um, a reputation for being a more compassionate work environment that's sustained through the hiring process is a strong attractor for talented people, Mm -hmm. and that people who experience compassion in their work environment are significantly more committed and intend to stay longer. Um, We also find relationships with adaptability to change, Mm -hmm. with um, people's willingness to collaborate and the quality of their collaborative relationships at work. And um, with service quality. So if your organization is trying to compete by delivering great service, uh, compassion in the work environment is a key contributor to people's ability to deliver good service.
1: Monica, this seems so simple to grasp. Why aren't all organizations compassionate? If I can ask a naive question.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, I think one very primary reason that all organizations haven't seen the power of compassion is because we have a really strong myth that work should be an emotion-free zone. And uh, if, if emotions have to enter the work environment, only certain kinds of emotions have been viewed as acceptable. So, you know, sometimes we get angry in our work or sometimes we get very impassioned about our work. But we really have a myth that people should leave their suffering at the door of work. And that myth of the emotionless workplace um, gets in the way of, of managers and leaders and um, key stakeholders in the organization, um, seeing just how important it is to tend to the suffering that's Highly present in work environments,
1: imported from our lives beyond work, and of, of course, as in your your Christmas, uh, you know, ambush story, uh, you know, created by um, decisions and actions that people take at work. So, we we want to awaken compassion in our world, and uh, let's get the let's get so, to to some of the guides for action the blueprint. Uh, that you've gleaned from, from your decades of research, starting first with the individual. So what can a person at work do to generate more compassion in a way that's good for her, good for her colleagues, good for her clients and customers, uh, good for her organization?
2: We, When we write about compassion, we write about it as a four-part human experience. And as i tell you the definition of those four parts they actually each go along with a way of thinking about how we could awaken more compassion in our own work environment so the first Mm -hmm. step uh, of compassion the first part of the definition is noticing suffering so you know i said before their, work organizations don't want to acknowledge that suffering is there and if we don't notice it we can never get all the way through to compassion so um, one thing that people can ask themselves is simply how could I notice more of the suffering that's around me at work? Hmm. The second step of the
1: process so can you give an, an example of how you would do that be, before you go to the sure. yeah. uh, pro, you know the interpreting, Feeling and acting. Uh, yeah. What what specifically can one do to be more attuned to the human suffering surrounding one at work without being overwhelmed by it, and and to you know to be able to uh, to tune in in an appropriate way that is uh, you know sustainable, ma- uh, manageable.
2: Um, well, uh, I think um, so. Noticing that it's there often um, means. A little bit of making sure that you allow for he- what what um, people call human moments at work. So, mm-hmm. if you work uh, remotely on a team that isn't all co-located in the same place, and you usually use you know email and text message and chat functions to coordinate your work. Um, getting together, kind of turning on the video conferencing equipment, trying to see each other's faces as much as you possibly can through that work environment. Look in other people's eyes if you can, and just sort of tune into the fact that you're working with other human beings and um, allow a little bit of time for talking about the full human experience beyond just the tasks of work. And uh, of course, that's, that's a difficult case. It's easier to allow for those human moments if you're co-located and you work together sure. in the same space. Um, you could take the first five minutes of a meeting and have uh, a simple kind of check-in where people have a chance to say something or share something that's not work-related. Um, Mm -hmm. Or you could just make yourself present in the break room or the lunch room and make sure that you guard that time as time where you're available to actually notice and interact with other people in a human way. Mm -hmm. And um, those kinds of uh, creating presence um, and creating... uh, So presence physically and psychologically can help us notice more of what's going on mm-hmm. and also notice it in a way where we're not right in the middle of a task and we want to shut it out or it becomes overwhelming. Right.
1: You need the time. You need the space. You need the, uh, the capacity, right, to be able to attend, to notice. That's-
2: yes. Yes. So the the grueling schedules that people keep, the you know very intense work demands, mm-hmm. feeling really really busy, all of those things make compassion harder. Right,
1: in and, work and diving into your into your smartphone anytime there is a break, and and, yes. and and not not seeing that there are human beings sitting next to you, but rather, you know, uh, going to your digital stream uh, that that cannot help.
2: That does not help, and I'm sure you have seen the research that shows that even the mere presence of mm-hmm a handheld device yes. can dampen our willingness to connect with other people around Wait, us. Wait,
1: what did you just say, Monica? I was looking at my smartphone. Oh, just kidding. Just, <laughs> sorry. <But laughs> there you go. No. So, uh, so <laughs> interpret is the next stage. Uh, or the next. So f- noticing that's probably the most important thing, just being attuned, keeping at least some of your consciousness open, available to the, the, there's a human being there, and that means that there's somebody who has some kind of suffering happening in their life. And, you know maybe you should be just attending to that, if not, you know doing something about it. But then, what does it mean to then interpret?
2: Yeah, I think of interpreting as the real key um, to awakening compassion. And so, if you just think you know sort of fundamentally, human beings are meaning-making creatures, and we're jumping to conclusions about what things mean all the time in a more or less conscious fashion. And then organizational cultures, um, you know, by definition, contain assumptions and ideas about human nature. That's part of what we learn when we get acculturated to being in an organization. So organizations can shape our interpretations really strongly. Um, so when if we open ourselves up to notice suffering, the next thing we have to do is we have to determine what it means for us. Mm-hmm. And there's several ways that uh, researchers have taught us to think about this. So um, one is if I notice that your sufferings do, and I think to myself, oh, I'm so busy, I can't handle one more thing right now. Mm-hmm. Or, I'm too distracted by the task at hand. Um, then that's a kind of interpretation about my own capacity to respond that will close down my empathy and keep me from acting with compassion. Um, So it's related to being busy, the attentional part of being busy, but Mm -hmm. there's also an interpretive part of being busy where you really tell yourself a story about your capacity to respond to another person in distress. Mm -hmm. But another uh, part of interpreting is where we started around the the notion of stigma and stigmatized form of forms of pain, and also, of course, stereotypes and stigmatized people. But whenever we think that somebody's pain is attributable to something they themselves have done, you know, like, oh, you're suffering from being overloaded right now, but it's your own fault because you didn't, uh, you know, come in early enough to handle um, the tasks that you knew were on your plate, but right? that kind of a story at work takes us away from compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's a form of suffering that's deeply stigmatized by our culture, um, say like mental
1: illness, for example,
2: mental illness, or sometimes burnout at work in mm-hmm. in organizations that are really heroic, where it's you know it's valued to be the one who can bear anything. Um, burnout can become really stigmatized. Um, suicide so, as a form of so. suffering, even in one's family. People can often turn away because they don't know how to interpret that suffer that form of suffering mm. as worthy of compassion.
1: There's, there's so much more to dig into, but we only have a few more minutes here, and I want to make sure that you've out the full picture. So once you've got an interpretation that allows for you to see Uh, you know, this person as worthy of your interest and compassion, then what?
2: The next step is feeling. And a particular kind of feeling that's crucial to compassion is what researchers call empathic concern, so um we can just we can just say empathy for shorthand but it's the kind of empathy where I feel I may not understand your emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh it may be foreign to me but I feel deeply concerned for your well-being. And mm-hmm. um what we know about feeling that for another person is that you know even if it's uh Let's take something like the refugee crisis. I've never been a refugee. I don't know what that experience is like. I don't really have a way of cognitively understanding it or even knowing what it feels like. But I can feel really concerned for your well-being as a human being and, um, and really want you um, to be well and healthy And that feeling um, is an automatic motivator to act with compassion.
1: And, I mean, this requires... a degree of, of self-insight and and control, really, and and mindfulness of your own, uh, you know, what it is that you're seeing, how you're thinking about what it is that you're seeing, how you feel about what you're thinking about what you're seeing. Uh, you True. Know, this is this is uh, the the capacity of a mature and wise a wise person, uh, and that takes that takes effort to develop over time. Um, and and I and your your examples and your guidelines in the book are, are helpful uh, in developing those skills that capacity. Uh, let's let's get to the the last piece of it, and, the, and that is to act. And then we're going to have to go to uh, go to our break. So, just very briefly, um, once you've got in your head uh, an understanding and an empathy of what it must feel like, then what?
2: Well, then acting is the fourth step, as you said, and um, by acting, we don't just mean helping and we don't mean solving or fixing, but really uh, acting can be everything from a small gesture or a word of emotional support all the way up Mm. to some, you know, kind of uh, coordinated help giving of some kind, Mm -hmm. but it's really go... Um, the, the trick here is to go beyond saying internally to yourself, oh, I, uh, I'm concerned about Stu, and to actually say out loud to Stu, hey, is everything okay? Or hey, I, I'm with you. I'm here with you, whatever's going on. Hmm. So um, we like to say that acts of compassion can be small to vast um, but they cannot. They and they also have skill, and they vary by the skill with which they're done. So, in, um, as you said, this is uh, this is a practice that involves wisdom and maturity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it also is a skilled practice to become better at knowing how to offer compassion to people in a variety of ways um, that actually alleviate suffering.
1: Hi, this is Stu Friedman. I hope you're enjoying this conversation, and I'm just so glad you're listening. If you like the Work and Life podcast, I would personally appreciate your taking just a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you access this podcast, whatever your favorite platform is. We are relatively new as a podcast, uh, and our team is working really hard to bring you for free the best of the conversations that took place on my Sirius XM radio show, but were previously available only to paid subscribers. So every positive rating and review helps us to grow our capacity to move faster toward the goal of sharing useful information and insights about how to create harmony among the different parts of life with people who wouldn't otherwise have access. So please do help us and if you have ideas for what we can do to improve our impact please write to me at friedman@wharton.upenn.edu I'd love to hear from you. Thanks and now back to the show. So <clears throat> I wonder if you could give a couple more examples <clears throat> from from your book or from your work your experience Uh, that would help people understand what it means to act with compassion or to receive it and why it is so, so important for us to be um, doing that more.
2: Yeah. I would love to give an example from our research that uh, involves leaders uh, and the messages that we get from leaders because that's something we haven't touched on. But in work environments, that's often a very powerful way that suffering gets communicated or silenced um, and so uh, we had we had the opportunity to study um, several uh, research universities after um, hurricane sandy which you know as you said that another form of suffering is the natural disasters that affect many 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 people and Um, One thing that we found in that study is that um, in some organizations, the leadership of the university gave a message to the faculty members, uh, watch out, because during the disruption that is caused by this superstorm, the students might take advantage of the storm to get away with not doing homework or not turning in assignments or something. And so you want to be careful and guard against that. Wow. And Shake in, my head,
1: Monica. Are you I, kidding? I'm
2: sorry to say that that's actually, that actually right. happened. Can you tell us uh, who that
1: person was and what university that was?
2: Yeah, no, no, I can't. Well, I don't think
1: so. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Um, but anyway, it gave you some good data.
2: Yeah. Well, in the contrasting <clears throat> case, The message from the leadership of the institution was you know everyone's affected by this in ways that we can't anticipate so please give the students the benefit of the doubt and do whatever you can to help them and if they need more help then you can give them here are some resources that you can call upon and so that message from the leadership of the school actually changed um, systematically the responsiveness and the way that faculty members tended to handle special requests from students mm-hmm. and so Naturally. of course you know we don't all, we don't always act in accord with every single message that we get from leaders but leaders are very focal in organizational cultures and they shape our actions in ways that we might not even see or understand. So when leaders give permission to give the benefit of the doubt and to interpret other people's suffering in more generous ways, it makes us more likely to feel empathy and to respond with acts of compassion.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And if if there are leaders out there that are worried that this could get really, really costly, I think another important finding from our research is that um, the number one thing that most people who are suffering want from their workplace is flexibility. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, most people aren't looking for really big, grand gestures. Now, of course, sometimes they get those, but what most people really need and want in the face of suffering at work is uh, a the ability to come in a little bit later or leave mm-hmm. a little bit earlier or turn in an assignment a little bit later or extend a deadline. Right. Um, and it's actually a pretty low cost uh, for organizations usually to provide that kind of mm-hmm. flexibility. And it can have enormous consequences for the people who receive it.
1: I have a great example of that. A number of years ago, when we were just starting out with the, the total leadership uh, project uh, in organizations, what, what that involves is uh, people enhancing their capacity to lead by being real, being whole, being innovative. They, they look at what matters most to them, their values, their life histories, and how those have been shaped. Uh, how those have shaped their values, their future vision as leaders. They, they look at the people who matter most to them at work, at home, and in the community. They talk to those people to clarify mutual expectations and understand what they need from each other better. And then they invent uh, creative ways, uh, innovations, experiments that are designed to make things better at work, at home, in the community, and for themselves. And they do all kinds of different experiments. And your uh your work brought to mind uh a number of things that i've seen uh, my students and clients do over these last almost 20 years now with this program. Uh one was a plant manager in a uh in a, a production facility who as a result of her stakeholder conversations heard from one of the people working for her that he had a son who was blind and he was just beginning school a special school for you know for kids who were blind. And this guy had not been performing well, uh, and it was kind of a mystery to her as to why that was, because he had previously been a, a strong performer, but the last year or so he was failing, and he was, you know, cons- and it looked like he was on the bubble, you know, to be, to be, to be uh, let go, and she discovered in her conversation with him that. He had this child, she didn't know this, and, uh, and, and uh, this child who was, who was blind and that he was not able to take him to school. His son, he couldn't bring to school and he desperately wanted to do this. Uh, and when, when uh, Susan found out about this, she said, well, it took her about 14 seconds to figure out a way to give him some flexibility in his schedule, which she did, enabling him to get to take his kid to school a few days a week. And when she reported on the results of that a month or so later to our group, there was not a dry eye in the room when mm-hmm. she described how he had completely turned around his performance, uh, declaring his very love for our company and for her. It was truly remarkable. A teeny yes. tiny tweak that meant really nothing to her had a humongous impact on him. Yes. Monica, we've got a number of people uh, who, who want to talk to you, so let's, let's open the lines here. Jeff uh, calling from California. Welcome to Work and Life.
4: Hi,, hi. how you guys doing?
1: Doing well. What's, what's on your mind? What's your story? Where have you seen compassion or the need for it at work?
4: Well, I, I have a really really interesting uh, thing at work. I have an employee um, who, uh, who I manage, and um, he and I had a, a conversation um, in one of our one-to- one meetings about a relationship, his relationship with his brother. And it was a very tumultuous relationship really a lot of tension growing up Mm -hmm. uh you know you know just a lot of you know just they just didn't get along and it was really interesting because we talked about it and i i encouraged him to you know to try and reach out i said you have to be the bigger person you know and and we had a lengthy conversation about it and um and then and then it was and this was last monday and i came in this monday and um i could see something was wrong and, and and i can't believe it but he told me his uh that brother passed away over the weekend hmm. um and it, it was just it was just very interesting because you know i don't know you know intuition or what but just just uh just to, that the fact that we just talked about this person and he passed away and i don't you know we didn't get into if he was able to talk to his brother or not but I just, you know, just I, I listen to your show a lot, and and, and I just want to share that because this uh, is probably the perfect example of it.
1: So, uh, Jeff, first of all, thank you very much for calling. Uh, really appreciate that. Uh, Monica, what would you, what are you curious about in Jeff's story, or do you have as a reaction to what he's he's told us?
2: Well, Jeff, thank you for telling the story. A couple of things that are notable to me. Uh, one is that. Um, In your one-on-ones with your employees, you're making space for deeply authentic conversations that go to the heart of people's humanity. Obviously, I can tell that just from this one story. And I think that um, is a recipe for being the kind of manager that changes people's lives. I'm pretty sure that your employees would probably um, testify to that as well. Another thing that stands out about the story is that um, because you have those kinds of conversations with people that you work with, you could come into work this week and you could see instantaneously that something was wrong. And that's a an example of noticing and attention mm-hmm. to the state of other human beings around us at work um, that I was talking about as the first step to compassion. And um, unfortunately, in many people's working lives, they work with a supervisor or a manager who barely sees them as a human being, and who doesn't pay enough attention to notice whether something's wrong or not. So I think it makes a stark contrast to listen to your story. And I just want to thank you for it.
1: Thank you, Jeff, for calling. Uh, Emma is calling from the great state of Pennsylvania, biggest pencil in the world. Emma, welcome to Hi. Work and Life. How you doing?
0: Um, well, thank you. Um, I called in because I actually work for a very large company mm-hmm. and was surprised at how compassionate they are. I'm not in an industry that is known for compassion. And the company as a whole has a very good... Um, Leadership of compassion. For instance, you mentioned Hurricane Sandy earlier. Mm-hmm. We got emailed about that uh, storm before it happened, letting everybody know hey, do what you need to do, attend your families, whatever you need to do. And that's a great example of just the leadership setting that, um, you know, kind of uh, culture. But what I'm curious about is what do you do with the folks who work for you or who work there? who might need the compassion, but might not feel comfortable sharing what's going on for them personally.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the big issue because they might be ashamed that something has happened in their lives that's not, you know, that's that's looked down upon or that there's some stigma associated with it, such as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, uh, mental illness or maybe suicide. Uh, So Monica, what have you learned uh, that can be helpful uh, in, in in sort of not just noticing but helping people to to come forward with what it is that they're suffering without feeling ashamed
2: yeah well I think it's really important to um, recognize that um, the the desire to create to keep suffering private or have other people know about it is um, partly intrinsic to us, uh, we have different levels uh, comfort levels with that as people and personalities, but also that in a work environment, the concerns are are um, doubled by the fact that people may feel that their their financial livelihood is yeah. at risk if they reveal things. So
3: mm.
2: we find that it's very important um, whether you're a colleague or a manager. To um, inquire in private, um, mm-hmm. if you notice that someone is, seems off or that something seems wrong and they don't reveal it um, in, in a public space or in a space with other people present, um, to arrange for a private conversation and to inquire, mm-hmm. um, that often helps. Um, people but may...
1: What Emma's talking but, about, though, let me just jump in here, Monica, is, is someone who doesn't want to come forward with what it is that they are you know, suffering. So, right,
2: and that, um, so I think what? that we have to sort of acknowledge that in workplaces that can, that can be a totally legitimate choice. <laughs> so um, we don't always know um, no, of what not. the suffering is, but I don't think that hinders the kinds of compassion we were mm-hmm. talking about before where we can, um, you know, we can... Uh, I've seen cases where people um, write a note or write a card and say, mm. um, you know, just wishing you a warm day and keeping you in my thoughts. Mm. Or, um, you may not know why. Um, or we've seen... Um, cases where um, colleagues will kind of take up a small collection and um, buy flowers or download a playlist of the person's favorite song. So
1: this, this is for someone who has acknowledged that they're suffering from some loss or something, you know, majorly distressing.
2: this is when you notice that the person is suffering or something doesn't quite seem off, even if you don't know what it is, or they haven't come forward with it.
1: But what, uh, Emma, do I have it right? You're asking about someone who might be suffering in silence and doesn't know how to speak about it. Is that right? Were you asking? Right. So- that, no, that's
0: exactly right. right. It, it, it's the cases of the introverts or... Right. Um, you guys nailed it, where people, it work. They don't want to share it because mm-hmm. they, they may not feel that that's a safe space. So, and I actually, in my, in my experience, I just, you said it earlier, you honor that they're a person. Mm-hmm. And you also honor that wish that they don't want to share something private. I honor mm-hmm, that. Of course. But... You know, just kind of extend the, if there's anything we can do, which feels so empty, hmm. you know, or if there's any, you know, any arrangements you need to make to either work from home or take a few days off, whatever it may be. It's just a, it's a little more challenging when you're not exactly sure what's going right. on. Right.
1: Emma, thank you so much for calling. Really appreciate it. We've only got a minute left in the show. So, Monica, if you could, in 20 seconds, uh, give us just your, your, your basic bit of advice on how to deal with someone who... Well, I think you've said you know, reach out if you notice. Um, but if you're the person suffering and you're not sure how to get your, your 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 you know the expression of your suffering out there, what do you do?
2: Well, um, I think many organizations ha- are trying to create spaces where people can reveal mm-hmm. suffering in safer ways. Mm-hmm. So. Um, This is, you know, uh, employee assistance programs. Some organizations have social workers on site these days. There's um, sometimes there's... uh, if it's a workplace conflict, sometimes there's an ombuds person or a conflict resolution. So providing program.
1: those resources and making it clear that you know it's it's okay to be a human being here—that's the that's the key idea. Monica, we are at the end of our hour. I want to thank you so much uh, for joining uh, joining us on the show and talking about your wonderful book, Awakening Compassion at Work: The Quiet Power That Elevates People and Organizations. Thank you so much, Monica. Thank you
2: for the invitation.
1: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Monica Warline about compassion at work and that you have a new idea or two about how you might ignite or awaken greater compassion in your working life. So here's my challenge to you, or invitation. Act on one of those ideas. See what happens. And if you do that, I would like to encourage you to write to me with your observations on what you discover. I love hearing from listeners. You can write to me, Friedman, at Wharton.upen.edu or follow on Twitter, at Stu Friedman, and you can message me there. For more about what Monica Worline does, check out her wonderful book with Jane Dutton. It's called Awakening Compassion at Work, The Quiet Power That Elevates People and Organizations. And finally, if you like this podcast, please take two seconds to rate and review it. The Work and Life podcast on iTunes. I would personally appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.